You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good morning. Happy Father's Day, dads. Glad you are here. Uh, If you're a guest, glad that you have joined us here this morning. Welcome in. My name is Pastor Derek. We're glad that you're here with us. We are continuing in a uh, sermon series we began last week called The Culture War, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Titus. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Titus. And for those of you online, thank you for tuning in. Last week, we learned that Titus was a Greek Christian, a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, and and Paul sent him into uh, a pretty hostile culture, a place called Crete, which is an island off the uh, coast of Greece. And the culture there, Cretan culture, was in many ways opposed to the Christian faith, to the Christian worldview. In every real sense then, Titus was sent into the midst of a culture War, And we talked about a culture war and what that means last week, that it's anytime you have two social groups who are opposing one another, who have opposition with one another regarding which personal values, beliefs, and moral practices should be seen as normative in society. And so Paul uh, wrote to Titus to instruct him and to encourage him essentially how to do this. And and last week, we talked about what makes us different as Christians in the culture war. There are a few things that set us apart in the culture war that make us different than any other social group in the world. The first one was that we are people who hold individual values and that our individual values for what should be normative in society are defined by our group identity as the elect of God in the church and not the other way around. So what that means is is that you hold some personal values in your own life. And when you came to faith and you came into the church, rather than trying to impose your personal values onto the church, you allow God through the power and ministry of his Holy Spirit to shape your values into conformity with his. And that sets us apart. That makes us different. No other group is like that. As a result of this, it also means that secondly, we believe in objective truth. We believe that because our values are, are mitigated to us by God through the Word, through Scripture, and because they come from the heart of God and because God defines what is right and wrong, that there is no such thing as like your truth and my truth. You do you, I'll do. That doesn't exist. There's just truth, and then there's error. And so we believe in an objective truth, which is countercultural in our postmodern world that we live in. This morning, we're going to tackle another prevalent question in our modern-day culture war. It is a battleground for certain. We're going to ask this question, what is a man? What is a man? And as funny as that may seem, it's a huge topic in the world right now, depending on who you talk to. There's a variety of ideas and definitions of what makes a man uh, or a woman a man or a woman. And there's, there's a lot of confusion over it. In fact, sometimes you'll find there's no definition at all. There's, there's nothing really concrete. And I would submit to you that this confusion regarding this is not an issue of education primarily. Now, that may shock some of you, but let me explain what I mean by that. It's not an educational 
problem. It is a worldview that underlies education uh, that is the issue. Worldview problems. There are some very educated people, in other words, who have a very difficult time defining these terms, not because they're not smart, but because they view the world through a different framework than Christians do. So they see things differently. They view things differently. They interpret things differently. And that gives them and puts them in positions different than and often opposed to the Christian faith. We believe that God created man and woman uniquely in his image, the imago Dei, that we are the only part of creation created in God's image, that, that of all of creation, all the animals and all the different aspects of the world, that humanity is set apart as image bearers of God. And that makes us different. And that he makes us male and female. He created them. That's what Genesis says. So we are unique. There's, there's a difference. But we are equal in intrinsic value. Right? We embody different strengths and weaknesses. We embody different roles. But we are equal in our identity as image bearers of God. That's a biblical worldview. But for the secular worldview, regardless of your education, there will be great difficulty in defining some of these things. Let me give you an example, a real-world example of, uh, of how this plays out, because I think it demonstrates it very well. Uh, not too long ago, month, month and a half ago, I don't remember, time is a weird thing when you're in ministry, because it just all sort of runs together. Um, but we saw a Senate hearing where a confirmation was done over a, the, the newest Supreme Court Justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson. She was questioned by another senator as to whether or not she could define the word woman. What does it mean to be a woman? And, and Jackson's response was, I can't, to which Senator Blackburn said, you can't, to which Jackson responded, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. Now, politics aside, I don't want this to turn into a political discussion. It's not. Uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, whether you agree or disagree with her politics, is a brilliant woman. She's a brilliant woman. She has a more than impressive resume. Graduate Harvard University, magna cum laude. She went to uh, Harvard Law School, earned a Juris Doctor degree. She possesses a prolific amount of judicial experience. She meets all of the measurable requirements you would want in a Supreme Court justice. Just an impressive woman. And yet, such a simple question, what is a woman, is something that in her mind cannot be adequately answered unless one is a biologist. It's, it's just difficult to define this term. Now, as difficult as it is to define what it means to be a woman, I'm not sure the same can be said about men. Culture seems to have no real trouble defining what it means to be a man, and it is overwhelmingly a not good definition. Part of the reason I suspect this is true is because the world's definition of what it means to be a man, what we have sold people on the picture of what manhood looks like, what masculinity, what true men or real men look like is a dreadfully weak version of what real men are intended to be like. And so because of this sort of weak, watered-down definition that falls horribly short of God's design for men, uh, there is a, a kind of just this really, honestly, warranted negative reaction towards it. If you've watched movies or TV or read any books in the last 50 to 100 years that describe what a man is like, here is the picture that you will likely come away with, or at least some aspects of this. Let me paint, let me paint a portrait for you this morning. They like to fight each other. They like to kill animals. They like to watch sports, drink beer, and eat meat. 
They burp and fart a lot. Almost like it's a competition. Sometimes it is. They objectify women. They make derogatory comments when women do not feign over how manly they really are. They're degrading to anyone who disagrees with them. They have little to no self-control. They will do what they want to do because they're men, and no one tells them otherwise. They make excuses for their behavior by saying things like, boys will be boys, or it's just a guy thing. In general, what it means to be a man in the world as described is protected and celebrated and packaged and fed to each generation. And so it's no wonder then that we have terms in our world today like toxic masculinity, where, where, where these intrinsic traits of, of what it means to be a man have been sort of blown up and over-exaggerated and added to such that you get a caricature of a man, not a real picture of what it means to be a man. Frankly, a lot of this stuff is very toxic. It's very toxic. So what I want to do the rest of this morning is talk about not what it means to be a man according to the world, but what it means to be a godly man from the Scriptures. What has God said about what it means to be a man? The Bible describes the ideal man as someone who is honorable, humble, noble, and above all things, Christ-exalting. Scripture gives us a very beautiful picture of it, of, of non-toxic masculinity, if you will. And so I want us to learn about this, the kinds of commitments that a godly man makes, the character that a godly man possesses, the convictions that a godly man lives by that drives him, that drives his decisions, that fuels his life. I want our men at City on a Hill to get a glimpse of the expectations that God has for us. And so it's fitting then, as we come to Titus 1, 5 through 9, on Father's Day of all days, I didn't plan it this way, I promise, that we will find the answer to what it means to be a man in this passage. It provides a very clear definition, I believe, of the ideal godly man. The passage this morning, we're going to learn about the qualifications for elders, which is essentially the highest male-specific leadership within the context of a local church. And, and I want you to listen to me very carefully. This is very important for you to hear me say this. <clears throat> Not many roles in the Bible with, with regard to leadership and, and, and church polity are engendered, okay? We did a very bad job of that. Of, of, of segregating women to certain positions and men to certain positions and limiting men and women from other positions that the Bible actually doesn't really limit for, for gender reasons. But this is not one of those. This one is engendered. It is specific to men, specifically men who pursue godliness. It is interesting to me. I find this very fascinating that Paul sends Titus to restore order in Crete, to counter a godless culture that has begun to find its way into the Christian church. And so he is to go there and undo this web of chaos and bring order and godliness back into the community. And the first thing that he tells Titus to do is appoint elders, priority number one. That's the first thing. That's the first step. Look at verse five. He says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is why you're here, Titus. This is why I have sent you to Crete, to reclaim order in the church. Well, how do I do that? You appoint elders in every town. That's how you begin. That's where it starts. This is so important for you to understand this. This is so important. Let me ask you, how many of you hope that City on a Hill will make an impact in our community? 
Yeah, hopefully, if you're like, no, I mean, like, <laughs> I hope that's not your sentiment. I just like the coffee. Um, our goal is to make an impact. That's what we want. We want to see the gates of hell shall not prevail. That's what James talked about two weeks ago. We want to be a light in darkness, a city set upon a hill. That's what our name is. We want to make an impact. Let me submit to you. If we hope to make an impact, we have to take establishing godly leadership seriously. This is where it begins. The starting point begins with solid, godly, qualified leadership in the church. We don't do anything else until we have this covered. Here's what this means. Let me flesh it out for you. Let's get very practical here for a moment. It means that any amount of social activism that you hope to accomplish in your community will fail. There will be no meaningful impact made through any kind of activism whatsoever if churches are not structured around godly qualified leadership. It means that any social dialogue you have fails. That means debates in person. That means arguments online. You can argue until you are blue in the face. You can dismantle all of the world's nonsensical ideas, and they are nonsensical, amen? It all fails to make a lasting difference if there's not qualified, godly leadership in the church, in the community. Any amount of political victory fails. Hear me say that. That includes your guy getting elected, your bill you support getting passed. It may seem like a win. It may be a temporary win. It fails to impact the world in a meaningful way for eternal purposes if churches are not structured around qualified, godly leadership. People of God, understand this. Change begins here. If you're uncomfortable with and displeased with the world that you live in, understand the first step to correcting any of this, it begins here. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Paul says begin here. So men, for Father's Day, I want to challenge you to be a better father, to be a better husband. I want to challenge you to be a better brother or son, to be a better coworker, to be a better church member, to be a better Christian. Essentially, to, to be a better man that God has designed you to be, that you were created to be, to walk in the purpose that God has for you as a male. And the way that you do that in part is by aiming for the target that Titus 1, 5 through 9 sets before us. It is essentially Proverbs 31, men's edition. We love to talk about Proverbs 31. We rarely talk about Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is a great goal to aim for. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's a noble thing. It is a good goal to aim for. So aim for it. Consider this a roadmap to how to be a better man. What does the elder look like? First, his relationships are built on commitment. His relationships are built on commitment. Notice that Paul says first, if anyone is above reproach. Now, what does it mean to be above reproach? What does that, what does that communicate? It means that the word here means unblameable. The idea here is that when you look at how committed a man is in his relationships, you shouldn't be able to question his commitment to those relationships very easily. It should be very difficult to question his commitment. The level of commitment that he displays, especially to his wife and to his children, it's the two relationships mentioned here in this passage, should be very high. So let's talk about them. Let's start with marriage. He is a committed husband. 
We believe that elders are men primarily because of this passage. And in 1 Timothy 3, it it says the same thing. He is literally translated a one-woman man. He is a one-woman man. He is, in other words, a man who belongs to one woman. That actually means then that elders are not only to be men, but they're to be married men. That's the implication. Or men who were married and are now widowers. Now, that may seem unfair, but let me give you at least two reasons for why I think this is true and why I think that the Bible dictates this to us. Number one, because marriage teaches leadership. Can we agree to that, guys who are married? It either teaches you leadership or, or you fail to learn it, right? But, but it's there. Ephesians 5.23, it's one of the sort of seminal marriage texts. Uh, if you've ever been to a wedding I officiate, this is the passage that I read to both women and men uh, because it says something about the wife and the husband. Verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. So the husband is the head of the wife, and by extension then, the head of the home. In other words, what this means is that the man is the spiritual pace setter for the house. Guys, it means that you're setting the pace for spiritual commitments. It means that you commit to the church and you bring your family along with you. Your wife shouldn't be dragging you to church. You should be leading them here. It means having regular conversations about God within your home. And hear me when I say this, because young people get this impression all the time when they're married. Jessica and I were 21 when we got married. We were, we were kids. And, and we were left with this impression that, like, if you're going to be a good husband, you have a, a timed Bible study with your wife once a week, right? That's when it happens. That, that is a sad reflection of what I think we think about following Jesus, as if you're going to have a vibrant connection with the Lord if one day a week you have a Bible study. What this means is not a planned Bible study. If you want to do that, that's fine. But what it means is, in addition to that, the Lord should be present in all of your conversations in some way. If you're making decisions about, now, I'm, and don't over-spiritualize this, like, I'm feeling like Taco Bell, should we pray about it? First of all, the Lord's going to say no. You don't even need to pray about it. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're under grace. It's fine. You can have the, you can have the, I've mentioned Taco Bell twice, a, twice in a, a, two weeks. That's, that's not a good trend. I need to, to let the Lord call that out of my heart. Um, it means in all your major decisions, though. You, you're, you're talking about the will of God within all of it. What does God want from us? What do you, what do you feel like the Lord's leading us to do? This is, what he's, this is what I feel like we should do. This is what I feel like would be best for our family, based on the wisdom of God through Scripture, right? Again, not over-spiritualizing it, but just talking about basic wisdom in decision-making. Men, it means getting your kids to youth group and kids' ministry, It means setting the bar for them. It means having value in those things. Again, I don't want to legalize this, okay? There are times when it is appropriate not to. But is it your inclination to regularly encourage them to be there, to get them to go to camps, to get them to go to VBS? We have VBS coming up in two weeks. How many of you have not signed your kids up? This is a step in godly leadership. Go after this and sign them up. Get them ready and prepped for vacation Bible school. They're going to learn about Jesus there. Why, why would you not want that? It means, men, signing up for and attending marriage groups with your wife. It means going to her, not her begging you, but you going to her and say, sweetheart, I think we should do this together. Watch her eyes light up 
when you say that to her because she's probably been praying about it for a long time. These are the, the kind of characteristics that men who value the Lord embody in their relationships. Marriage will teach you leadership. It will teach you how to lead your family. It also teaches a little something about sacrifice. <laughs> Marriage requires sacrifice. Paul goes on in Ephesians 5.25. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, your love for your wife shouldn't be domineering. It shouldn't be demanding. It shouldn't be propped up with this kind of bravado that you're this big, important person. It should be one that is sacrificial in nature and in tone. It means then that you are sacrificing your wants and your desires to lead her more effectively in the love and fear of God. Guys read this passage and, and we think, you know, we're Rambo, right? Like I'm going to have to lay my life down for my wife. Someone's going to come in with a machine gun and I'm going to like in slow motion dive in front of her, right? <laughs> and like the prospect of that happening is just very low. The prospect of you choosing to sacrifice some sporting event or movie or dumb show you want to watch in order to go on a date with her, though, that's real sacrifice. Yes, it is. Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. Now, let me clarify a couple questions about this discussion of a one-woman man because there's inevitably at least three questions that come up, and I want to address them because I assume probably some of you at least are thinking of them. The first question is, what about single men? What about single men? Some churches teach that it is okay for single men to serve in the capacity as elder. Uh, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 6 that there are advantages to being single. Paul himself was single. Um, it gives you the ability to have total devotion to the Lord, uh, and that is true. That is true. There is advantages to that, but let me say a couple things to that. Number one, Paul is using himself as an example of singleness, which implies he is talking not about single for a season, but single for life. Those are two different things, right? Uh, if you are single for life, then that sets you up to have an advantage to be totally devoted to the Lord in a far greater way than even serving in a, as an elder, but per the example of Paul, more like a missionary who can just up and go anywhere you need to go to serve churches anywhere and not have the responsibility of a wife and perhaps a, uh, a child. Beyond that, the argument goes that, well, if single man, men couldn't serve in this capacity, then Paul and Jesus couldn't be elders as well, to which I would say Paul and Jesus are never described as elders. Paul is an apostle. We talked about that last week. He is the mouthpiece of God. He's a slave and an apostle and a missionary because he's single and totally devoted. Jesus is the son of God. It's a little bit higher than an elder, would we agree? Why would he? It doesn't make any sense. Now, neither of them are ever referred to as elders in the New Testament. You know who is referred to as a fellow elder? Peter, the apostle Peter. And Peter was married. Peter was married. If you remember in the Gospels, uh, Jesus goes to heal Peter's mother-in-law, the mom of his wife. Imagine the bonus points he got for that one. <laughs> Sweetheart, I know she's sick, but listen, I know this guy. He'll take care of it, right? It's amazing. He refers to himself in 1 Peter 5.1 as a fellow elder. So let me, let me reaffirm something here while we're in the neighborhood. Just because you are single men, and this applies to women as well for that matter, it does not mean that you are second class. I need you to hear that very, very clearly. 
It means that, guys, right now, if you are single, you are in a season where, where God is either growing you and preparing you for eventually marrying, or He is preparing you for a single life in which you will be set apart for far more than simply being an elder in a local church. Again, perhaps a missionary. And both are worthy of celebrating. Both of those are worthy of celebrating. The second important question to address, what does it mean to be a one-woman man? There are two primary ways to understand this phrase. We don't have a lot of time to really dive into all of it, but it means at least either a one-woman-at-a-time man or a one-woman-for-all-time man. Uh, There's a lot that could be said about this. I think this uh, situation is more complex than than simply these two choices. I will say I'm, I'm, I'm led to the first one more than the second one, and here's why. Because there are instances in which uh, men are widowed and given not only uh, biblical encouragement, but, but, but the green light to remarry in the event that their wife or a woman's husband dies. One example of this is in 1 Timothy 5.14, uh, where it counsels younger widows to marry, have children, manage their homes, and give the enemy no opportunity for slander. So if remarrying after death is a bad thing, it seems confusing then that Scripture would here and in other places encourage it. Doesn't seem very disqualifying to me. The way I understand a one-woman man is less positionally and more dispositionally. So follow me when I when, when I say this: that the disposition of an elder should be then to have eyes for only one woman, to have affection for and faithfulness towards one woman. He's all in. There are no other prospects. She is his one and only treasure that he values alone. There is nothing else. His love and devotion, in other words, should in some levels, and it will fail, but should in some levels mirror God's love and devotion for us. There's nothing that we do to earn God's love and favor in our life. Therefore, there should be nothing that she does to earn his love and favor in her life. It should be given freely regardless of what she does or does not do. He decides, I will be committed. I will love regardless. I'm all in. This is the heart of a godly man. Third question, what about divorced and remarried men? What about those cases? To which I would say it's a case-by-case scenario. There's a lot of questions that I would have. What was the cause of the divorce? Uh, Did they have kids? Was he a believer when they were divorced? Maybe he was a non-Christian and he got married early and he got divorced early and then God worked on his heart and he became born again later in life and and now he's married. And There's a lot of variables that I think go into that discussion. Uh, For me, it's not so much an issue of remarriage as much as it is a question of is he above reproach? Is he above reproach? Can someone look at him and based on this past divorce say that's a guy who's unblameable? There are instances in which I would say it is possible. There are instances when I would say perhaps isn't. So we look at them individually, case by case. So the elder is a committed husband. Second, he's a committed father. Look at the second half of verse 6. It says, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Again, there are two things going on here. Uh, The elder loves and raises his kids to love Jesus and to love others. This does not mean that they will be perfect kids. Please hear that. It does not mean that they will be perfect. They are allowed to make mistakes. The the one, I think, horrible thing 
that churches are often guilty of is placing the crushing and unnecessary weight of perfection onto kids of pastors and elders. It's unfair. It does a lot of psychological and spiritual damage to them. The two things that this passage demands is that they become believers and that they are not reckless and uncontrollable in their life. That does not mean that they will not have episodes, that they will not make mistakes, that they will not be uh, 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 quarrelsome from time to time. They're kids. It means that their life will not be fully uncontrollable, off the rails in every way. And even then, there's questions of age, and are they adults, and when did this happen? I mean, these are complex situations that I'm trying to simplify a little bit. I want you to get the heart of the, the passage. That's the important thing. That in general, this, this embodiment of an elder with his commitment to his relationships is such that no one can look at him and go, I wonder, what's, I wonder what, where the disconnect is there. Because don't, he doesn't seem too committed, both with his wife and with his children. Now, come back to this morning. Let me say a couple of things uh, in interest of those of you who will either not marry, who will not have kids, or for one reason or another will never meet these qualifications. Let me say this. First, you are matter, or you matter. You are loved by God, and God will use you in ways that you cannot imagine if you'll humble yourselves before Him. Do not be discouraged, men, if you do not meet the qualifications for an elder. Not everybody will be an elder. It's not for everyone. God has a plan and a purpose for you, and that looks different from person to person. Some of you will serve in this capacity. Most of you will not. Some of you may have made mistakes that disqualify you from the office of elder, but let me be very clear, they do not disqualify you from the love and the grace of God. You need to hear that. God loves you. And in light of that, second, these principles still matter regardless of whether or not you're an elder. If you are, you have this past that disqualifies you, you're not above reproach, whatever, whatever the circumstances are, godly men can still embody these characteristics, these principles, and live a life honoring to Jesus that will impact not only the church but the culture that they exist in. Godly men put a high premium on their commitment in their relationships. They serve people that they are in community with. Why? To lead them closer to Jesus. And that often looks sacrificial in nature and in tone. It's not domineering. It's not degrading. It's one that puts others before themselves. And any man can do that regardless of your past, regardless of your role. Any man can do that. So let me ask you a question. What is preventing you from this? What do, you, what do you need to do to be more deeply invested in these kinds of relationships? What changes do you need to make? What, priorita- or what priorities do you need to reorganize in your mind? Are we starting to get a picture of non-toxic masculinity? Can, can you understand that if men lived more like just this, I mean, this is only the first point, we have two more, but if men just did this, how much of a difference this would make in our world? It'd be amazing. They are people who have relationships built on commitment. Second, they're men who have a reputation built on character. Look at verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Now, just as a side note, a little Bible study tactic for you. If you ever see a word or a phrase repeated within a short time span, that's an indicator that it's being emphasized. It matters. Something, there's, there's weight in it, right? The angels around the throne of God in the throne room, they're not flying around going, holy is the Lord. 
They're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What's being emphasized there? The holiness of God. So we, we have the same kind of thing happening here with, with regard to reputa- repetition. Verse 6, he says they must be above reproach. Verse 7, he says they must be above reproach. Now, I'm going to submit to you that verse 6 is talking about living above reproach with regard to his relationships, and that verse 7 is talking about living above reproach with regard to his character. Now, let me just tell you this, men, plainly as I can, your reputation matters. It matters. It really does. If you're going to make an impact on the community that you live in, you need to have not a bad reputation within that community. Now, how do you do that? You do that by living with character. Paul gives Titus a picture of both bad character, which we'll call character defects, and good character, which we'll call character strengths. We'll begin with the character defects because that's what Paul begins with. Here's the first one. He must not be arrogant. He must not be arrogant. Verse 7, it's exactly what it says. And, and, I, and I love the, the Greek word here. It's the Greek word authetes. It's a word that means to be pleased with oneself, <laughs> to be greatly pleased with oneself. He should not be that way. This implies a stubbornness to change, a bad kind of stubbornness to change. Proverbs 28, 25, an arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. In other words, arrogant... Arrogant men are unwilling to change. They, they think there's nothing wrong with them, and they like the way they are. So much so that when they are corrected, they become combative. He's fine, and he doesn't want to hear otherwise. This is the opposite of the character that an elder should embody. Number two, he should not be quick-tempered. In other words, he has patience. He doesn't, he's not instantly riled up when he's questioned or corrected. It doesn't mean that he's never angry. Again, it doesn't mean that he's perfect. There are times when it's appropriate to be angry and not sin. There are times when he'll just have a bad day and he'll need to repent. But it means that in general, he has a long fuse. He doesn't go from zero to 100 every single time you question him or correct what he's doing. Number three, he should not be a drunkard. This one's fairly self-explanatory, but we'll talk about it anyways. Uh, he, he doesn't give in to the sin of drunkenness. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.19 and 21, Paul lists drunkenness as part of the acts of the flesh. He even goes on to say, this is terrifying, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this does not mean avoiding alcohol entirely. And that, I think, trends towards legalism. Paul says that uh, with regard to meat sacrifice to idols, don't do anything that will make the weaker brother stumble, but for the one who abstains, don't cast judgment on the one who eats. So there is a law of love in place here between believers. But in the context of City on a Hill, with regard to the ministry that we do in addiction, perhaps the discussion of alcohol is better had under the banner of above reproach. And again, that does not necessarily mean um, abstinence, total abstinence. It does mean, at the bare minimum, a tremendous amount of godly wisdom in the decisions that you make. Number four, he should not be violent. I love this word, plektes in Greek. It's a word that means one who is apt to strike. (laughs) He's a puncher, someone who's quarrelsome. This is not how an elder or a godly man operates. This is the opposite of what Jesus talked about when he said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking often involves conflict, right? 
It does not involve violent, quarrelsome conflict. And fifth, he should not be greedy for gain. In other words, elders are, are, are willing to sacrifice for the body of Christ that they serve. Their concern for the body of Jesus in a local setting is higher than their concern for themselves. So those are the character defects that elders are to avoid. Here are the character strengths that they're to possess. Number one, they should be hospitable. There's an eagerness, in other words, to demonstrate kindness to other people. That's what this word means in the original language. It means that they're willing to use the resources they have to help other people. Again, going back to the greedy for gain, it implies that elders are considerate of others before themselves. They lead with the desire to care for those around them by utilizing the things that God has gifted them. Number two, they should be a lover of good. I love this phrase, a lover of good. It doesn't mean that they are good. Only God is good. But it means they love good. They aim for good. That's their goal. Number three, they should be self-controlled. I mean, this is listed in the fruit of the Spirit. This is for every Christian, by the way. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, right? Kindness, self-control. These are the things that every Christian should embody, but especially the godly man, especially the elder. He should have restraint. He doesn't make impulsive decisions. He should be able to say no. It's a difficult but good skill to learn, man. You got to get that. Learn to say no when necessary. Don't just say yes to everything that you feel like doing. That's impulsiveness. Have self-control. Number four, there to be men who are upright comes from the Greek word dikaios. It's a word that means just or equitable or fair. In other words, they lead with the interest of doing what is right in the interest of all people. Their decisions that they make, they, they take into account the equity for all people in their actions. Number five, they should be holy. They should be set apart. They should look different. They are set apart. They're marked for a special kind of service. The elder does not see his role as one that is merely practical, but one that is sacred. God has said, this is how the church is to be organized. This is how the church is to be led. This is a sacred duty. It's a sacred role that God has given us. So we, so we take it, we approach it with great humility in the way that we lead. And number six, he must be disciplined. And, and I would argue that this is one that sort of glues the other five together. It's the one that underlies all of the other characteristics. In other words, it's very difficult to maintain the other de- uh, characteristics without discipline. An elder's reputation is built on his character, and without discipline, he will utterly fail in exhibiting godly character. What do they say? It takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. Discipline safeguards your reputation. It safeguards the words that you say, the actions that you take. Discipline controls those things, those urges that would otherwise disqualify you. Listen, the point is that is that to be an elder is to be, I think, the ideal kind of godly man. It's not toxic like culture's definition. It's not domineering. It's not harsh. It's not selfish. This is a man who's deeply committed to the relationships that God has given him. It's a man who has a reputation of, of being one who embodies great character in the way that he lives and speaks. And by the way, this is not just talking about reputation in the church. Let me clarify that. It, it, it counts out there as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3 gives the other list of qualifications. It's basically the same thing. There's a couple of things added. Timothy, I guess Paul was just a little lengthier with Timothy. In 1 Timothy 3, 7, he says, moreover, he must be well thought by outsiders. So it's not just what you do in here that matters, guys. What you do out there in the workplace and in the public square matters just as much. 
Elders have relationships built on commitment. They have a reputation built on character. Last, they have a responsibility built on conviction. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. There are two responsibilities set forth before the godly man, both that require conviction in order to uh, uh, keep. The first one, he must be devoted to God's truth. He must be devoted to the Word of God, the truth in God's Word. Notice the first part of verse 9. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught. Pay attention to that word or that phrase, hold firm. It's a word that means to cling to. When I was 16 years old, uh, the summer before my junior year of high school, uh, our parents took us on a like 10-day whitewater rafting trip through the Middle Fork Salmon River uh, in Idaho. It was an amazing trip. I, I don't know how much the trip, as an adult, I think, like, how, how much did that cost? Like, it was just incredible. Ten days, whitewater rafting. Everywhere we went, there was people there that had set up camp and cooked us dinner. It was just an amazing experience. The, the rapids that we went through were uh, classes four and five near the, the, the middle to the end of it. It got very, very tense. It was an incredible time. Uh, about, I don't know, four or five days into the trip, they gave the option to get out of the whitewater raft that held, you know, like 10 people and a professional and into a kayak by yourself. And me being the immortal, untouchable 16-year-old that I was, thought, I'm going to get in the kayak. And I did. And I thought, I'm going to be the best kayaker that has ever lived. And for the first, like, half day, I excelled. I did so well. I thought, God has created me to be a kayaker. This is who I am. This is my identity, Derek the kayaker. And I went about my time, and, and in a little five-minute training that, you know, they gave me before they entrusted my life into my own hands, uh, they told me, rule number one, if you fall out of the kayak, which I'm like, that's not going to happen, uh, you let go of the paddle. You let go of the paddle, rule number one. I, uh, you know, half day went by, great. We got to a class in between four and five rapid. To give you just some perspective, the top of the rapid to the bottom of the rapid was the length of two school buses next to each other. I was very excited about this. And um, they told me that the rapid was known colloquially as one for two. Now, if, if you uh, have good reasoning skills, you might be able to determine why they named it that. Because for every two people that went down the rapid, only one of them came back up the other side. And I'll give you uh, a choice to guess which side of the odds I landed on. So I went down the rapid, I immediately flipped and fell out, and immediately was pulled under by an undertow. And I remember spinning, I mean super, super fast. I don't know how fast I was spinning, it felt very fast, it felt aggressive. And I was fighting and fighting and trying my best to get out of this undertow, and it just kept pulling me under and under, and I was swirling, and I was scared out of my mind. And after about 30 or 45 seconds, I, I literally thought I was going to die. I, I thought, like, this is how I die. You always wonder, like, how's it going to happen? For me, it was being pulled under in a whitewater rafting, acting like an idiot as a 16-year-old. And, and I, I gave up. I thought, like, this is it. This is, this is how it ends for me. And the moment I gave up, I was released, and I popped up to the surface. And I remember floating up on my back, coming up under, you know, out of the water, and the, the guide and the little raft, the big raft, came up next to me. 
And, and all I see is the guy leaning over and he goes, I told you to let go of the paddle. I mean, I was, you know, clutching it, just terrified out of my mind, adrenaline. I was clinging to it. I held fast to it. It didn't matter how much current took me. It didn't matter how much I was spun around. I held on to that thing for dear life. That's the picture here in verse 9, is that for an elder, for a godly man, when you are pulled into the current of the world, when you are swirled around, when life begins to get difficult, you hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. You don't let go. Now, that is not hard to do until life gets hard, right? We love to take our Bibles and love my Bible, right? But when life gets difficult, how easy is it to put this down and look for the world's wisdom or science or politics or social activism or some other philosophy out there to help me deal with the pain that I'm experiencing or the pain that I believe I'm about to experience? But not the godly man. The godly man holds fast to Scripture. He does not let go. He sees it as his responsibility to the body of Christ to be anchored and oriented in the wisdom of God's Word. He's devoted to the truth so that, secondly, he can develop others in the truth. He says, notice, that he will engage in instruction in sound doctrine and by rebuking those who contradict it. Now, Get this, because this is a, a common confusion. It does not mean that elders will all be teachers. It means that they are all able to teach. Paul says in 1 Timothy, give honor to your elders a double portion to those who teach. So it implies that there are some who do teach, give them double honor, and there are some who do not, give them regular honor as elders. They're able to teach. They're competent in the Scripture to give instruction in sound doctrine. They're able to recognize when someone is living unbiblically and they are able to correct them. Can you see why this would be valuable in the culture war? Can you see why this matters? Because when someone comes into the church and they have been infected by the world's way of thinking and their thoughts have become departed from what Scripture says, an elder can identify those things and say, hey, what you're thinking is not rooted in Scripture. Let me help you. And he can instruct them in truth and bring correction into their life if they're willing to have it. This is so important to keep the church well protected and well guarded from the error that permeates through our culture. This is why it starts here. Because you can win all the little tiny battles out there, and all the while, their crazy is seeping into the church. And if you don't have elders to contend with it, you're sunk. Men, this stuff matters. I mean, let me just be honest with you. It matters. This is why we hold these standards very high at City on a Hill. We are only as strong as our leadership it's why we provide these references to Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 on every single elder nomination card we give out every single year. This fall, you're going to get another elder nomination card. It'll be in your seat when you come in. And, and, and we want you to read these qualifications, and when you take your pen out and you write down the name of a guy you think fits to be an elder, run that person through these qualifications, because that's what we're doing. We're going to funnel those names through these qualifications, and we're going to ask, do they have what it takes. Do they meet these qualifications? If we don't do this, we've missed the first thing. If we want to impact our culture, it begins here. It, it begins with men submitting themselves to the lordship of Jesus. It begins with men putting down the weak image of what it means to be a man in the world. 
and picking up a non-toxic masculinity, one that demonstrates commitment in relationships, one that demonstrates character and reputation, one that demonstrates conviction and responsibility, and one that is ultimately here to exalt in, worship, and serve the risen Savior. We won't get it perfect. You won't get it perfect every time, but by God's grace that is sufficient to cover your shortcomings, He will use you. But guys, it begins with you. The time has come to become a man, the man God created you to be. Put down the boy and take up the man. If we're going to have success in this world, if we're going to have an impact on this culture, this is where it starts. Pray with me. Father, how we love you. We thank you. We're challenged, as always, when we open your word by just the harsh reality of truth we have been sold a bill of goods with regard to what it means to be a man. You've made us uniquely with, with a designed purpose, and, and when we walk in that purpose, God, it's a powerful thing. Help us. Humble us. Birth in us the desire to live these things out. And God, where we fall short and, and, and where we lack, would you give us the desire to see those things changed. We can never change. We can never change these defects on our own. Only your spirit can do that. Would you just give us the willingness to allow you to do that in our lives? I pray for every man here. And I think about the, the vision that you've, you've given us and, and, and what, what it would look like if you fan to flame the, the bold desire to live fully for your glory as men with created purpose. What that would look like for our church, what that would look like for our community, it would be an amazing thing. Help us become that. Help us embody these traits. Help us live with conviction. And help us remember grace where we fail. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Men, if you weren't here in the welcome, we did, we did say that we've got Bibles. For those of you who do not have a good Bible, uh, we want to give you one. Uh, if, if you have a Bible and you're looking for a second or third Bible, go to Mardell. Um, don't come and take one. But if you do not have a good Bible, uh, it's an ESV translation. It's what I read and teach and preach from. We would love to get you that. You can come up here or in this back hall, and we'll make sure that we get you one. God bless you.